KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, we have a midterm postmortem panel with writers from The Nation magazine, Ellie Mistal, Joan Walsh, John Nichols, Chris Lehman, and D.D. Guttenplan, editor of The Nation. But first, Harold Meyerson, of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Historically, in the midterm elections, the party of the president in power loses 25 or 30 House seats and a handful of Senate seats. Sometimes they lose a lot more than that. Trump lost 40 House seats. Obama lost 63 seats in the House in his first midterm. And this time, Democrats were told that this year's losses would be brutal, given the level of inflation across America and the low ratings of Biden as president. But maybe you heard the news. The red wave did not happen. Democrats are holding the line in the Senate about as well as they could have hoped. And they kept the fight for control of the House tight. They've held on to the governor's offices in key swing states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. And they've added two, Maryland and Massachusetts, now have governors that are Democrats instead of Republicans. Overall, it was a historic success story for the Democrats Tuesday night and a triumph for Joe Biden. My question for you, Harold, why? That is a damn good question. A uh, pollster who I think quite highly of says that while independent uh, men who are independents did indeed vote Republican, women who are independents voted decidedly Democratic, and that that in many cases uh, blocked the possibility of a wave election for Republicans. I think, uh, you know, moderates, people who uh, can swing, and even a small fraction of Republicans themselves uh, have had it with uh, the MAGA folks. Uh, Exit polling makes clear that there are significant numbers, though a minority of Republicans who are not MAGA. Uh, The fact that Donald Trump became more visible and more troubling for Republicans, more audible, in the last uh, couple of weeks of the campaign, uh, just sort of heightened people's sense that uh, there was magna, uh, there was uh, maga madness uh, abroad, (laughs) which they could either empower or uh, retard. So that was part of it. Um, I also think if you look deep into exit polls, there was no surge of support for what would be called traditional Republican economics. Even though this was a midterm electorate in which uh, Republicans and Republican leaners outnumbered Democrats and Democratic leaners by 4%, there was still majority support, 53 to 47, for the proposition that government should be doing more uh, to offer support to Americans as opposed to those who thought government should defer more to businesses and individuals. So that's in a midterm electorate. Uh, you know, while the approval and disapproval ratings of uh, the Democrat Party uh, ranked in the low 40s, uh, in the mid 40s for approval and low low 50s for disapproval, uh, same true for the Republican Party, even though, again, this was an electorate in which Republicans outnumbered Democrats. Uh, so, uh you know, I, I think there was uh, a rejection of the uh, the MAGA 
uh, tendency in American politics, and that substantially offset uh, uh, a lot of the uh, discontent with uh, with the Biden administration, in particular on inflation. And I would add one other factor, the factor that I've been harping on for months, the turnout levels were at a historic high point for a midterm. Turnout levels were close to what we see in a presidential election. Basically, American politics has been transformed partly by Trump, who increased turnout of both Republicans and Democrats massively, partly by the rise of voting by mail, which was made necessary by COVID, but has increased the number of people who vote by tens of millions, and also partly by the Democrats' focus on ground their ground game in some of the key swing states where a lot of independent Democratic groups had raised tens of millions of dollars, not to spend on TV ads, but to spend on door-to-door, face-to-face, and then at the end, turn out the vote uh, work, historic levels of turnout seem to be, may well be a permanent feature now of a transformed American electorate. I I would make two points uh, adding on to what you said. Uh, The the abortion issue did obviously play well for the Democrats, and I don't doubt that that increased turnout, particularly among younger women. Uh, That's the first point. The second point is historically the highest rates of turnout in American history uh, were those that immediately followed the Civil War. The late 19th century saw the highest levels of turnout. Now, at the time, the franchise was restricted basically to white men, uh, briefly to black men as well during Reconstruction, at least in the South. Uh, But, uh, you know, it occurs to me that since we are in kind of a Cold War version of a civil war, that, uh, you know, that that increases turnout as well. There is more animus at the other side uh, uh, in the land these days. And and that's a, a motivating factor to vote for both better and worse. The Democrats did surprisingly well in many places, but the great disaster for the Democrats was Florida, and particularly Miami-Dade County. Uh, Ron DeSantis won a truly historic victory there by 20 points. For the first time, they lost Miami, which has always been a blue success story for the Democrats. Um, Some of our friends are saying, Florida has become a red state. It's time for the Democrats to give up on Florida, stop spending a fortune, uh, in Florida, switch the money to North Carolina, uh, where the chances of victory seem much better, and which was sadly neglected by everybody. I have to say, including you and me, I would agree with that. Um, I, I think Florida should be viewed as out of reach. I think Texas, where uh, Abbott beat uh, Beto by more than ten points, uh, it should be viewed as out of reach. North Carolina uh, is, uh, is uh, you know, certainly a state that is more in reach as are Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, Mich- and Michigan. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's where the Democrats need to focus and Nevada and Arizona as well. I think those are the swing states where the Democrats have, uh, you know, uh, a pretty good track record of, of, of winning close elections. So we shall, we shall see. And you know, John Fetterman is, is proof positive of that. 
We sort of would like John Fetterman to be the model of future candidates, except for his health issues, of course. But the kind of campaign he ran is is something we would like to see the Democrats do all over the place. Absolutely. I mean, uh, addressing the kind of bread and butter issues in a kind of, you know, way that relates to working class voters uh, that used to be the staple of democratic campaign politics. Uh, it is not the staple now, and uh, it you know it 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 clearly worked. Uh, I would add that the huge reelection victory of California's own Gavin Newsom doesn't mean that he can uh, actually do that. California uh, ha- is has the second lowest after Hawaii, the second lowest percentage of white working class residents. Uh, Gavin Newsom has not had a need, really, politically, when you look at it, to address those folks. And I don't think he could do a very good job, despite the fact that he is well-suited, obviously, to the California electorate. But getting back to Florida and the degree to which DeSantis proved himself well-suited to the state's Latino voters, uh, overall, the exit polls showed that Latinos voted 60-40 for Democrats generally across the nation. So what accounts for this level of exceptionalism in Florida? And I, I would point out that the uh, Florida-Cuban community, which in a larger sense has set the tone for a lot of Latino politics in Florida, is much like the Vietnamese community in Orange County. They are both refugees from communist regimes, They are, uh, in the context of current American politics, unduly susceptible to red scare politics. Uh, And, uh, you know, this has prodded them to, uh, you know, move off in uh, uh, Republican directions. Nowhere more absurdly than in Orange County, where uh, Michelle Steele, who is a Korean-American Republican incumbent member of Congress, uh, red-baited uh, Jay Chen, who is a Taiwanese-American, bewilderingly for being essentially a Maoist, uh, <laughs> yes. which uh, he has devoted his life basically to bolstering in, in, in the Chinese context, the uh, Taiwanese anti-communism, uh, but uh, the degree to which uh, the Vietnamese community in Westminster and other parts of Orange County was susceptible to this suggests, uh, you know, just a a vision so shaped by uh, the experience in Vietnam, just as Cubans were shaped by the experience in Cuba, that it's almost disconnected, A, from reality, and B, from the experience of 98% of the rest of American voters. So we've talked about the way Fetterman in Pennsylvania set a model for what a democratic victory in 2024 could look like. I think Michigan is another place where we see a model democratic campaign, democratic party, the way they combined the referendum on abortion rights with bread and butter, UAW type economic uh, campaigning. Yeah, Gretchen Whitmer, I think, is uh, certainly a future star of the Democratic Party, if not a current star of the Democratic Party. She she won handily and did fuse, uh, you know, the, the the social and the economic. Let's remember that when she first ran for and was elected governor four years ago, 
Her slogan was fix the damn roads. You know, you don't get more basic than that. And uh, basics should not be shunned just because they're so basic. Uh, you know, she uh, she made an impact then, and I think she makes a greater impact now. Ron DeSantis is the Republican star from Tuesday. Do you think Ron DeSantis is going to have an easy time of it making the transition to a national Republican political leader? Uh, the short answer is no. Uh, he, he, he clearly has envisioned himself being that uh, for a very long time, possibly since birth. Uh, you know, and what it raises, of course, is the uh, prospect of a Trump-DeSantis bitter primary fight. It's, it, you know, as I was writing in the prospect in a piece uh, posted on uh, Wednesday morning, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you kind of have the de delusional fascist of Trump versus the hard-as-nails fascist of DeSantis uh, uh, competing for that. I, I, you know, I, I noticed Tom Cotton, uh, right-wing uh, right Arkansas senator, announced he's not running. You know, I, I would have trouble imagining in the current Republican Party anyone really getting much traction in a, a, a Trump-DeSantis primary, although it does leave open, you know, whatever is left of the more moderate wing of the party, uh, since both of them, uh, you know, uh, have bases that are fundamentally far right. And let's talk about Georgia. We're going to have a runoff. Democrats seem optimistic about their chances of the Reverend Raphael Warnock winning on December, what is it, 5th? Uh, 6th, I think. December 6th. Uh, do you, uh, what are your feelings about Well, that? I have some concerns. One is, you know, remember the runoff in 2020 was actually in 2021. It was January yeah. 5th. By moving it to December 6th, that really doesn't leave a lot of time for mail voting, uh, getting out the ballot, uh, you know, people getting it back in. Uh, that handicaps Warnock. Um and, you know, there was a libertarian who got 2% of the vote, and that vote is not going to go to Warnock in the runoff. So it's tough. Now, a lot depends on Nevada and Arizona. Assuming Kelly hangs on. Um, in Arizona, it, John uh, Kelly. Yeah, incumbent. Kelly hangs on in Arizona, where he does have a significant lead with about two-thirds of the vote in. Uh, you know, then the question is, what happens in Nevada, where Cortez Masto right now is trailing uh, Adam Laxalt, the Republican, with a uh, uh, an estimated maybe 100,000 mail ballots still uncounted, which would tend to favor Cortez Masto in, within that. But no one, I think, has a, I've been told by my Unite Here sources, the hotel worker union that does so much in democratic politics in Vegas, that uh, they don't really know, uh, as they have in previous cases, this time, they don't really know how many uh, mail ballots are still outstanding. So, But if Cortez Masto wins, then the Democrats are assured of 50 votes plus one, since Fetterman picked up a seat uh, in, uh, in the Senate. And uh, why George, the Georgia Republicans who didn't vote for Walker would then vote for him under those conditions it's a little unclear because the Democrats would have the majority either way. If Cortez Masto doesn't make up the deficit and loses, then this is again an all for all the marbles uh, contest. Uh, it, it literally determines who has control of the Senate. 
So that would be very high stakes. And uh, and I would know, say I, Warnock has one secret weapon in this, which is Donald Trump announcing that he's going to be a candidate that will certainly boost Democratic turnout. Yes, yes. Well, Trump has already, I think, in terms of his already, his impact on the midterms has been helpful for the Democrats and really not helpful for the Republicans. So we have to we do have to hope that that will uh, continue to be the case in the Georgia runoff. And what what will happen now to Stacey Abrams? She has lost her second run for governor, did not do quite as well this time, didn't get quite as many votes as she got last time. She's clearly a, not just a talented figure, but a heroic and visionary strategist and organizer what what is her place going to be in georgia politics and american politics well first of all i think looking at why kemp won so much more decisively this time than he did when he ran against abrams in 2018 i think his standing up to trump on the whole issue of whether there was voter fraud in uh, in georgia and helping trump out uh that really won him the votes of people uh, in the moderate wing of the republican party and centrists who could not bring themselves to vote for Herschel Walker. So she was, in a sense, the victim of that. Clearly, you know, there will be turnover, I think, within the Biden administration in uh, the coming weeks and months. And she would be certainly, uh, a, you know, a stellar appointee. Uh, although, you know, if the Republicans control the Senate, I'm not sure Biden will get any appointments. Uh, and so if there are resignations, uh, it, it will probably be good to have it done now and uh, confirmations in the lame duck. Uh, uh, but she certainly could do that. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know what national movement she could lead. I mean, certainly one for build, trying to build a more permanent democratic uh, uh, ground game everywhere. Uh, you know, the DNC uh, could always use a, a, a new chairperson. Uh, what about the so DCCC? Uh, well, the Detroit, yes, they need a new chair uh, person. So let's let's Malone, fill in, in case our listeners haven't followed this story. Please fill us in. Well, Sean Maloney heads the DCCC, and he the kind Democratic of Congressional in, campaign, campaign Committee that committee, runs the House moved, campaigns. He, he moved into uh, a different congressional district, compelling the de Democrat there to, to run elsewhere because he thought it was be more winnable, and he lost. He's really following in the tradition of Joe Crowley, uh, you know, who, who was the longtime Democratic incumbent who lost to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the days of easy victories for long-established pals with recognizably Irish names uh, <laughs> in, uh, uh, in New York uh, have, uh, has, you know, seem to have come and gone. And under his leadership, the DCCC was ruthless in campaigning against progressive uh, uh, candidates of Democrats in primaries. Absolutely, as as was the Dennett's Democratic Senate Campaign Committee, too. Uh, some of those progressives had a really good night, uh, uh, you know, on Tuesday night. Summer Lee won in, uh, won in Pittsburgh. Greg Caesar won in San Antonio. Uh, others not so well, but, you know. I don't think it can be said that there was any clear uh, advantage to one or the other wing of the Democratic Party in Tuesday's results. We need to talk about California and, of course, Southern California. The votes are, are only a few of the votes have been counted as we speak here on Wednesday afternoon. The 
mayoral race is very much up in the air at this hour. The sheriff's race, our, our Sheriff Villanueva is losing pretty badly, it seems like. And then there's the house races, which we've talked about almost every week. Fill us in on, on where we stand about the remaining Republicans in Southern California. Well, so far, Mike Garcia uh, has the edge in the Lancaster-Palmdale district in the northern tip of uh, of, of L.A. County. This is uh, running against Christy Smith for the Smith. second time. And in uh, Orange County, uh, Michelle Steele, who I already mentioned, she has, I think, a relatively narrow lead right now, but favored to win over Jay Chen. And uh, the other uh, Asian-American Republican in Orange County has an easier uh, race, which she is winning handily. Our gal, as it were, (laughs) in Orange County, uh, uh, Katie Porter, uh, has the narrowest of leads right now in her newly redistricted uh, district, but uh, her folks are confident that uh, the mail ballots that remain uncounted will put her over the top, which let us hope will be the case. The one thing that really stands out to me is the Riverside County, now Palm Springs district, where Ken Calvert, who has been the Republican representing that area in Congress for 30 years, is actually trailing the Democrat, uh, Rollins, I think, who's been a, a gay activist in Palm Springs, which is an area that is very friendly to gay activists. I don't think he's expected to win, but merely the fact that Ken Calvert, the perennial congressional government of that, that terrain is at this point behind is at least notable. Finally, it's time for your Minnesota moment. News from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Fox News. Minnesota is a place where the Democrats had some anxieties of what they might lose if it was a a, a red tide. One of the top national targets of the Republicans for the House, Angie Craig, who represents the congressional district just south of the Twin Cities, won her election. That was a very big one in a nationally significant race. And the Democrats ended up in Minnesota with a trifecta. They won the governorship and control of both houses, which they they only had control of one house before yesterday. And uh, they're also the wonderful and heroic Attorney General Keith Ellison seemed to be endangered, but he has come through. So uh, the Gopher State is glowing for the uh, Democrats today. It's another place where the red wave just never made it. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, it's been great following this campaign with you over the last months. Now we're going to be talking about Georgia for the next few weeks. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, Marching (laughs) through Georgia we go. Thanks. Uh, Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. We are taping our midterm postmortem at midday on Wednesday, the day after Election Day, when some key races have not yet been decided. We have a terrific group, which includes Ellie Mistal, the nation's justice correspondent, author of the bestseller, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Also, Joan Walsh, national affairs correspondent, author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? 
She went to Georgia for the Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock campaigns. And of course, we have John Nichols, national affairs correspondent, author of the new book, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers. He's in Madison for the gubernatorial and Senate campaigns in Wisconsin. And we have Chris Lehman, D.C. Bureau Chief, former editor of The New Republic, author of the book, The Money Cult, Capitalism, Christianity, and the Unmaking of the American Dream. And our conversation today will be moderated by D.D. Guttenplan, editor of The Nation. Trump candidates lost across the country. Trump's rival for the Republican nomination, Ron DeSantis, had, you know, what from the point of view of Trump haters was a great night. In fact, I would love to hear the panel's thoughts on whether we should worry more about a DeSantis run in 2024 than a Trump run. I'm going to start, I guess, with Joan. Big winners from last night. It isn't called yet, but Katie Hobbs in Arizona and uh, Mark Kelly in Arizona. Carrie Lake and Blake Masters are two of the most hideous people in the country who've ever you know, graced our political scene. So it looks pretty good for the Democrats there. So that was a huge relief to me. Um, I was relieved to see Kathy Hochul win. I didn't even think it would be as close as it got. That was disappointing. We've got to talk about New York Democrats. Something, Something's really wrong there. That was really a pathetic showing. Chris Lehman, big, big winners that you particularly noticed? Well, John Fetterman, I think he's a big winner, both in terms, I, I think, of shifting the momentum for a Democratic majority in the Senate by picking up that seat. And I also think um, he was a win for economic populism, which amid all the pundit chatter leading up to the election, everyone was supposed to be freaked out about inflation. They were saying the economy is really weak for Democrats. And here you have someone who was like four square behind um all the income supports out of uh, the COVID crisis supported Biden's student loan relief package, which interestingly, Tim Ryan, who lost in Ohio running as a populist, did not support that. Um, and given the salience of the youth vote, I think, you know, and, and it's also the case in uh, Nevada, which is close, that the Democratic incumbent did not align behind the, the Biden student aid. Um, in terms of losers, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Lauren Boebert. You know, John mentioned uh, Masters and and uh, Carrie Lake as two of the worst people. There is room for Lori, <laughs> Lauren Boebert on that list, and she will not be darkening the, the halls of Congress. I certainly did not see that coming. You know, I was among the people who were skeptical about the closing pitch that Democrats mounted about democracy being on the ballot. But I think in retrospect, um, that had some real traction. And obviously... I think another winner here is the mobilization behind reproductive rights. We saw, um, you know, the abortion ban referendum go down in Kentucky and and in four other states, pro-abortion uh, referenda won easily. So that was a clean sweep. Ellie. I really think that the mainstream media in general and the, the Beltway and corporate media, uh, Beltway and New York media specifically, like huge L. Y'all got it wrong again, mm -hmm. and you did it in such a way as to ju just do nothing but freak people out for six months, knowing absolutely nothing. I swear to God, I never want to see another poll for as long as I live. <laughs> 
All right, like the the New York media needs to like there is a general thing that the corporate media needs to like look inside of itself and figure out not only why it keeps getting things wrong, but why it keeps getting things wrong in favor of Republican narratives. Like like what are you what are you doing within your newsrooms, within your still largely white newsrooms that you always seem to be parroting an incorrect Republican narrative and shoving it down people's throats in the months and weeks and days leading up to every election. This ain't the first time. Um, another big loser, Kevin McCarthy, man. <laughs> Even if Republicans take the House and it looks like maybe they, that is an ungovernable coalition. <laughs> best case scenario for him right now, he's going to have what, like an eight seat majority, maybe? Like, best case, like, mm, yeah. good luck. Good luck, Kev. Um, <laughs> couldn't happen to a worse guy. The winners, I mean, like what won is the idea that we get to do this again in 2024, which was not a fait accompli at the beginning of the night, right? Like if like two days ago, we couldn't be sure that we were going to get to have another kind of free and fair election in 2024. Now it looks like probably we will get to have another election in 2024. So I guess that's a win. The other win, and it sticks a bit in my craw to say this, but um. Joe Biden just had the best night of a first term incumbent president like ever. While I have kind of like serious disagreements sometimes with his strategies and his policies and and what he does, he's not wrong, right? Like you can't say that he's wrong. The candidates who stayed on Biden's message overperformed. They did extremely well. And it was the candidates that that started to try to backtrack off of Biden's message. I don't see how you can look at this election as anything else other than an endorsement of not just the Biden agenda, but like, and again, this is the part that sticks in my craw, the Biden strategy for pumping out that agenda seems to have, generally speaking, worked. So good job, Joe. John Nichols. Okay. Since we're all starting with losers, I will start with my biggest loser, and it's by far Ron DeSantis. He has now become the face of the Republican establishment and the Donald Trump wing, which is the dominant wing in the party in most of the country, uh, will be out to get him. And uh, Ron DeSantis is going to be very easy to get. Uh, he is indeed, as Saint Ron the Sanctimonious, uh, the translation, I think, to the national stage will be ugly and rough. And I can tell you that in races around the country, the Republican governor that people wanted to have come and campaign with them, even though Ron DeSantis went everywhere and forced his way in, the governor they wanted was Glenn Youngkin from Virginia. DeSantis has kind of ended up with a big political target on him. And so I think that makes him a loser. To my mind, the biggest winner is Barack Obama. Uh, and I don't think there's any question that uh, if you look at where the mood was on the day that Barack Obama went on the campaign trail, that he, where he did it, with skills that, that were universally celebrated. He, for better or worse in the Democratic Party, uh, signaled himself to be the party's best communicator. Uh, two other winners. I think that there was a big effort to write the choice movement off. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I will bring up one person and that's Dana Nessel in Michigan. Dana Nessel, to a greater extent than anyone else, argued at every turn that choice was a winning issue. She fought to get that choice referendum on the ballot in Michigan. Dana Nessel, Attorney General of Michigan, 
will eventually be either a U.S. attorney general or a presidential candidate or something because she's that good at it. Parallel to that, I do think Democratic governors and gubernatorial candidates were big winners. It's the lost story of this because we cannot get ourselves out of the Washington mode. Democratic gubernatorial candidates picked up at least two more governorships, perhaps three if Arizona goes the right way. And the interesting thing is they did so as a more diverse, more progressive, uh, and, and frankly more strategic group than they've ever been in modern times. Uh, we will have a LGBTQ woman governor of Massachusetts, a state that you know has been you know white male leadership, except for a couple of brief interruptions for a very long time. Uh, with Maura Healy, you're going to have uh, first black governor of Maryland. You're going to have uh, a lot of younger governors, and it's just these victories are huge, and they came in places very unexpected. And these Democrats ran more progressive than a lot of the national messaging. They were on Medicare expansion or Medicaid expansion. They were on legalizing marijuana was a universal for these folks. Um, I think the other big winner is is folks who didn't give up on rural voters. At the top of that list is John Fetterman. John Fetterman ran on a strategy that he would go to every county and every town of any size in the state. Uh, It clearly paid off for him. Tony Evers and Mandela Barnes, although Barnes narrowly lost, in Wisconsin did the same strategy. And I, when I looked at the map this morning, I saw islands of blue voting in rural areas that had been lost for eight years that were back. And I think there's no way that Democrats win in major states without at least holding their own in rural areas. Stacey Abrams ran such a great race four years ago. It was so painful to, to watch this unfold. I think that she was hurt by being perceived as having, you know, put herself out to be vice president. She was, you know, viewed as as kind of becoming a national celebrity and leaving some Georgians behind. I don't Mm -hmm. think that that's Mm -hmm. accurate or fair, but I heard that a lot. But there's still, you know, issues of misogyny in all of our communities. Um, and they tried to face it head on. They did every night they did, you know, black men have something to say events. She won black men, let's be clear. Overwhelmingly. Overwhelmingly. The people who really should be ashamed today are white women in yeah. Georgia. So, you know, let me get that out of the way, but you know, there is a perception, um, uh, you know, among black women that she did pay a little bit of a price for being for being a woman, and uh, I can't I can't disagree with that. I mean, I think that Warnock ran a very good campaign. He ran on a good campaign for what he's going to have to do. Yes, Stacey Abrams won black men. The, the, the media narrative that black men were going to abandon Stacey Abrams that happen. is just wrong. I do think that Stacey Abrams took a hit for being a black woman, but that's with white women. It is white women that punished her for being a black woman. When you just straight up look at the exit polls nationally, right? And I know what you see, as usual, is 65% of white men voting for the Republican candidate, mm-hmm. 55% or you know, so, 55 to 52% of white women voting for the Republican candidate, and a majority of everybody else voting against Republicans. One quick thing, though. Take a look at independent women, which is a fascinating thing. Independent women of all races, usually uh, a big bellwether in a midterm election year, 
they usually are the ones who swing against the party in power. Right. This time, independent women, I think it was 54 to 42, a pretty wide margin, voted for the Democrats. And then when you drill down into that, it was the choice issue. If you look at the number of ads that the Democrats actually put up on choice before the very end of the campaign, they did not make it in many of these states as central an issue as they could have and should have. And uh, and so I do think that the parties themselves and the billionaires who donate to the Democratic Party, they, they still tend to not figure out how to reach out. There's another bright spot for those of us who, who are economic populists, and that is the demise in New York of Sean Patrick Maloney. Here's the head of the DCCC. He spent 800 or $600,000 of their money on his own race. He bumped out Mondaire Jones from his yeah. district. Uh, losing a great progressive voice in Congress, mm -hmm. and then he went down. So, and can we note also that he was also one of the prime movers on the strategy of having Democrats spend money to help to quote unquote nominate the weakest Republican, uh, which sometimes worked, uh, particularly in Pennsylvania governor's race. But you know, when I watched Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin without money, without resources in September when he was getting beaten up in the most vile possible ways on television, I was wondering, boy, you know, maybe if some of that money that Maloney and the other insiders had and the Democratic Party had steered into Republican primaries, maybe if that was available, uh, it might have been a little easier for Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin. I, I just want to do one thing. White, after kind of uh, crapping on the white people in general, as, as <laughs> I am wont to do, white voters under 30 versus Gen Z congressman um, um, in Florida and an otherwise terrible situation that happened in Florida. We got the first Gen Z congressman in Florida. The, the, you, one might argue that one of the big national stories, even as Don, I agree, were kind of, this was a great signal to run a however old, 120-year-old man for president. <laughs> whatever we're going to do about that, right? At some point, the Democratic Party needs to get younger yeah. because young and, people are demanding it. And here's the, well, they are now demanding it. That's the problem. They're, they Young people are actually, some young people are standing, stepping up and running. Folks like Maxwell Frost, who you mentioned, Summer Lee in uh, Pennsylvania mm -hmm. and others. Uh, but, you know, look, if you look at the polling data, the young people are most inclined toward Bernie Sanders. It is an authenticity issue, I think, with the Democratic Party. And, and that, that for young people, I think they do respond more to authenticity. And... If you want to dump on on folks in the Republican Party or Democratic Party, I apologize. They lacked a youth strategy. You had the president of the United States do a couple of things on climate and on on uh, student loan. But remember, when you're dealing with student loan debt, right, you are not dealing with people under 25 that much. You want to talk to college voters, right? You talk about ending the cost of college, right, addressing that. And there just wasn't a strategy, and it was agonizing to watch. In 2016, there was this big youth movement behind Bernie. The party establishment could not distance they re they rejected it far enough away from that youth movement. And you saw what happened in 2016. I could tell you about this year. Right. Bernie Sanders reached out and said, I'm, I'm ready to go to campuses. The party leaders were, by and large, resistant to that. They were like, oh, no, no, they, they even have ads up that attack Bernie Sanders. We shouldn't do that. So Sanders finally turned to Tom Steyer and Next Gen, and Next Gen 
helped to get Bernie out. He did 20 campuses across the country, uh, drew you know huge crowds. I'm not giving him the credit that you would give to Obama or to other folks, but what I'm telling you is that having a youth-oriented strategy that has issues and that has investment and a program, for Democrats, that's that should be like the easiest thing in the winner. world. In a lot of these key races, you had young voters turning out upwards of 70% for Democratic candidates. Oh, it's, it's overwhelming. Our midterm postmortem conversation will continue after a short break. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now we return to our midterm postmortem conversation with Writers for the Nation, Ellie Mistal, the Justice Correspondent, Joan Walsh and John Nichols, National Affairs Correspondents, and Chris Lehman, D.C. Bureau Chief, and the moderator's D.D. Guttenplan, Editor of the Nation. He poses the questions. How did the DCCC scheme of supporting the Trumpiest candidates in the primaries pan out? I hate this strategy. I think there's a lot of reasons to be opposed to it. But I have to acknowledge, uh, in places like New Hampshire, uh, Mm -hmm. it was probably a saving grace. Uh, And so because Maggie Hassan's easy win in New Hampshire is critical to potentially holding the Senate. I'm like John. I hate this strategy because, among other things, it relieves democratic strategists of doing the hard political work of persuading people to come over to your side based on your actual agenda you're just using fear you're using the specter of you know we can't afford to give power to these people which is absolutely true but you're not doing the work it also is usually done on behalf of centrist democratic candidates who haven't built out a campaign that has a dynamic appeal right it's more like We'll, we'll get a Republican who is so bad that our boring candidate can win. Is it possible to build off the foundation of this election to develop a broad progressive coalition for 2024? Say what you like about the Pennsylvania Democratic Party. They went all in for Fetterman. You saw ads for Fetterman by John, by Bob Casey. You saw the organization turning people out in Philadelphia in great numbers as they can do when they want to. But, you know, are there other are there other races that you also where you can see the beginnings of this coalition? So let me give you a quick example, and other people will have better ones. But uh, Michigan, the fact of the matter is that the women who lead the Michigan Democratic Party at this point, Governor Whitmer, uh, Jocelyn Benson, uh, Dana Nessel, they, they made choice central. And very important, they raised it up higher than other parties. That was very smart. It proved polling tells us it was good. But they never let go of economic issues. They are very, all very, very close to unions, very, very deeply committed in a UAW state to being aligned with unions. And also all three of them poured enormous energy into Detroit and into black communities across that state. If you want to look at building a coalition and building something real in a state that Donald Trump won in 2016, I would say the Michigan model is a pretty significant one. I think you take all the money out of Florida, 
<laughs> take all the money out of the fool's gold that is Texas every yeah. goddamn time, yeah. and you put it in North Carolina, and we yeah. have the first black woman senator from North Carolina. Yes, yeah. that was that was. I mean that that was a perfect example of that race of media malpractice because nobody was writing about North Carolina, and it's it was clear that that was agonizingly close. That was the most painful part of the night for me last Yep, time. and we didn't yep. spend enough money in, in North yep. Carolina because I think, again, we always taste Florida and we always taste frickin' Texas. And so my other thing about building this progressive coalition, I swear to God, if Democrats run another white male in Texas, I love Beto. I think he's a great guy. Love to have a beer with him. Hope that he has a great career. He's not going to win Texas. In, in these Latino heavy districts in Florida and Texas in the Southwest, they have found Latino Republicans to run for them. And the Democrats can't seem to do that. How is that even possible? Because again, despite, again, there's going to be a huge meeting there. No, Latinos flipping towards Republican. No, not really. Not really. Majority of Latinos still voting with the Democratic Party, but we can't seem to find Latino candidates to run against Latino Republicans and of course we do find them we just don't vote for them in the primaries so again you're gonna you're gonna you gotta need to start moving money out of Florida which is just just gone that's a red state now right it's like you move money out of Florida you put it into North Carolina and you invest if you're gonna go after the fool's gold in Texas and some of these other states you got to start investing in candidates of color in that case in those states that have some ability to turn out the the non-white vote in those states and and see what happens there ohio is the quadrennial in fact biennial heartbreak the mm. last time democrat i mean sherrod brown sherrod brown can win ohio right yeah. give him that but the last time any other democrat than sherrod brown won ohio was barack obama 10 years ago and yet massive amounts of money go there and the truth is this is a painful thing because we at one time say we want the 50 state strategy, but the fact is that that there's never been a 50 state strategy. There has always been a bias toward a handful of big states that folks in Washington think they can pull across <laughs> wow. the line rather than actually building out a strategy in mid-sized states that would, I think, be far more beneficial. And that includes North Carolina. Um, and frankly, I mean, look, I knew he wasn't going to win, but Charles Booker in in Kentucky was a fantastic candidate with a fantastic strategy, running in a state where choice was on the ballot, and he never got, he didn't get an, an inch of help from the National Party. And that's in a state with a Democratic governor, by the way. Clearly, what I think would almost guarantee um, a Warnock victory in, in the runoff would be if Trump declares his presidential candidacy. I think yes. that will... That would help. That will send Democratic <laughs> turnout through the roof. So once again, we may have to be saying thank you, Donald Trump, for the Senate. Th- this election, to the extent that Republicans are going to take back the House and are still very close to taking back the Senate, these are gifts from John Roberts to the Republican mm-hmm. Party, not just in the 2013 decision where he gutted uh, sh- the Voting Rights Act, mm-hmm. but in the 2021 decision in Rucho v. County Common mm-hmm. Clause, where he allowed gerrymanders to go supercharge you don't have a republican house right now if you're not allowed to gerrymander florida uh uh the uh, texas and oh, alabama in the yeah. way that they have right so like the, this is 
the fact that Republicans are still in the game and are probably still going to win the House, that is a direct one-to-one gift from John to the rest of the party. So, I, again, I think that he, he's actually kind of a winner here. His political acumen has once again saved the Republicans' bacon, and if they had listened to him on abortion, it would have saved them even more. You didn't mention the decision that, that Roberts organized that actually made Mitch McConnell who he is, and that's Citizens that's United. United. The, the lost story of 2022 is that this was the year that Mitch McConnell, to a greater extent, even than any time in the past, solidified his relationship with the big checkbook billionaire donors. He was running them more effectively and moving more money than anybody else in Washington. Uh, and there is simply no doubt that his marshalling of billionaire money through a variety of avenues. Uh, That's what saved Ron Johnson. There is simply no doubt of that. That's what saved J.D. Vance, who Mitch McConnell hated. And yet, when Peter Thiel cut the money off for J.D. Vance, it was Mitch McConnell who literally moved in tens of millions of dollars. And so Mitch McConnell is not a loser here. In fact, he actually got out of 2022 a relationship that, as Elliot points out, in 2024, uh, you're going to see him as far more central than Trump, far more central than DeSantis or any of these other players. It will be Mitch McConnell who will sit with the billionaires and decide where the money goes. Republicans are always going to have billionaires. They are the party of organized money. And, you know, it's true that under Bill Clinton, the Democrats became the other party of organized money. Uh, but, But that's a race the Democrats are never going to win. What, what are the elements of the coalition? What do we see as key shoots of hope from, from this morning? And where do we take them or where do we think they need to go for 2024 in order to oppose this tidal wave of money, which is happening? There's always a green wave, whether there's a red wave or a blue wave. I, I think we do see the elements of a nascent coalition in the results today. It, it is about... Um, the right to reproductive choice. It is about racial injustice and rising inequality, which are, you know, the features of the economy that the billionaires want. So, and I think John, in pointing out the the Michigan story, which is, I think, an, an encouraging model, reminds us, you know, that historically, the Democrats have been the party of, of working people. I will confess, I started reporting a gloom and doom column <laughs> before last night, and I, we, you know, was interviewing a uh, former Clinton White House first-term speechwriter who said, like, coming into the '94 uh, debacle of the Republican Revolution, you had not Clinton himself, but all the insider, the people we've been talking about, the DC savvy set, um, saying um, basically forbidding use of the word union on the uh, 1994 campaign trail. And uh, that was because, again, these were the new Democrats. They were shedding themselves of all these constituencies, which very much included African-Americans. Remember the sister soldier moment very much was the, and we haven't even talked about the phantom issue of crime this cycle, like, um, you know, but Bill Clinton was the capital punishment um, mm-hmm. supporting president who executed Ronnie Rector off the campaign trail to show what a tough on crime asshole he was. We have here, I think, you know, we a way to thread 
these incipient movements together under a banner of broad, broadly speaking, economic justice. Fetterman's victory is is an auger in that direction. I think Ryan was never going to win in Ohio. Ohio did do really well in terms of the congressional delegation. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. Ryan helped elevate those candidates by harping on economic justice. Uh, the problem, of course, the Democratic Party has its own millionaire and billionaire donors, and they very much don't want to run in them. Stacey Abrams and uh, Raphael Warnock, I believe, outspent their opponent. Money was not an issue here. How money was spent might have been an issue. You know, I mean, I think that people were frustrated with Warnock for putting more money into television ads than on the ground. We're talking about elections and we shouldn't be talking about elections. We should be talking about politics. If we were serious about politics, what we would recognize is that if the Democrats took down their ads nationally for one day during this election cycle, let's say October 18th, they just took the ads down. I promise you they would have tens of millions of dollars from across the country. If they put that money into funding of rebuilding their party apparatus in every county, every one of the 3,700 county, counties in the United States, then they would have something permanent that was real, that was actually in contact with real people. And so they could fund it with one day of their TV ads. But I promise you that, well, that sounds completely logical, I think, on this conversation. If you said that inside a DNC, DSCC, DCCC, you know, any of these groups, they would look at you like you were out of your mind because the D-link between democratic strategy at the top and actual politics is almost complete. These people do not deal in politics, they deal in elections and their whole theory is how do we put a bunch of pieces together for this election, then let it fall apart and then try and figure out how to put it together for the next election. What we talked about a little bit is crime and I guess I would love to hear whether any of you think that any of the candidates show that the Democrats have figured out how to talk on, talk about crime because I listened and I didn't hear it. I know that I talk too much about Wisconsin, but it is still the greatest place in the world. And um, in Wisconsin, Tony Evers, the governor of Wisconsin, in the final stage, uh, he put up ads that were that they were put up actually, I think, by a group backing him, but they were fantastic. They had his opponent going on about crime, and then they would flip, split screen and go to Tony Evers and says, Tony Evers, he just can't get his mind off uh, lowering costs and getting gas prices down and stuff like that. And then they'd put up something that his opponent was saying on culture war stuff, and they'd say, Tony Evers, he just can't stop thinking about inflation. They actually did a brilliant job of juxtaposing the use of uh, issues to divert people from the core of the campaign to what really what people are actually associating with, and they took the issue of inflation back from the Republicans and gave it to Evers. It was an incredibly successful ad campaign. I invite people to look at it rather than me describe it. But the bottom right. line is, you have to confront these issues and then show them to be the strategies that they are, rather than simply running away from them or even getting into a tit for tat that never succeeds. Our midterm postmortem conversation included Ellie Mistal. Justice Correspondent, Joan Walsh, National Affairs Correspondent, John Nichols, National Affairs Correspondent, and Chris Lehman, 
DC Bureau Chief. And our conversation today was moderated by D.D. Guttenplan, editor of The Nation. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.